Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Market Show. It is Thursday, the 4th of August, 2022. We're recording at around 2pm. Uh, on the show today, we've got Michael Farney. Hi, Michael. Welcome back. Hello. Good to have you along. Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Hi, John. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Welcome back from your trip abroad. Uh, Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Hi, John. And hosting as normal, Dan Jones. Hello, Dan. Hi, John. Coming up on today's show. Yeah, we've got a tale of two turnaround stories this week. Pearson and Rolls-Royce, one of them turning much better than the other at the moment, of course. Uh, And we're also discussing our cover feature as usual, which this week is on accounting scandals, how policymakers are trying to prevent them happening again, and perhaps more importantly, what private investors can and should be doing to spot these problems themselves. Juicy, juicy stuff coming up. Uh, Before then, a quick news roundup as normal. Today, as we record, Thursday lunchtime, the Bank of England raised interest rates by half a percentage point, the biggest single increase since 1995. The bank has also raised its inflation forecast to 13% and now predicts the UK will fall into recession in the last three months of this year. Elsewhere this week, energy companies announced more record profits. BP saw a 14-year high quarterly profit of £6.9 billion following Shell's £9 billion profit. Meanwhile, miner Glencore has seen half-year profits of $18.9 billion off the back of strong performance from its coal business. JD Sports has a new CEO. After the dramatic exit of Peter Cowgill, the company has appointed Regis Schultz to take the top job. Schultz previously ran French chain Monoprix. Uber posted its first ever positive free cash flow quarter in its history. Our colleague Arthur Sants has a good write-up looking at tech companies such as Uber's pivot away from growth at all cost models uh, in these inflationary times. You can go and seek that out on the website and in the magazine. Uh, Speaking of write-ups, we've got 66 company results in our magazine this week by my count. Uh, I won't mention them all. You'll be pleased to hear, but here's a quick flavour. Domino's Pizza has seen higher wheat prices and driver shortages cut into profits. The company reported a fall in pre-tax profits for the first half of the year. Jennifer Johnson has maintained its buy rating, however, in the write-up of this one, so you can go and see why she's so bullish in the mag or online. Sticking with fast food, Greg's has delivered a steady set of half-year results with like-for-like sales growth of 22.4% versus 2021. Our very own Mark Robinson uh, with that one. And HSBC's half-year results were overshadowed by its chief executive, Noel Quinn's efforts to prevent separation of the bank into European and Asian divisions, something that's been demanded by its largest shareholder, Chinese insurer Ping An, and Julian Hoffman has the write-up on that one. FTSE 100 unmoved this week at just under 7,500, but Wall Street is in the green, with the Nasdaq in particular picking up 5% in the last five trading days Accurate time of recording, as always. Let's get on with the show. Thanks, John. Yeah, uh, as you say, we do have a a thicket of results still. We're still in the middle of uh, reporting season. So we're going to look at a couple again today, uh, starting with Pearson, uh, which, as I said, the top is a a bit of a turnaround story. Uh, Gone through several years of trying to turn around rather unsuccessfully, but now does appear the, the situation appears to be improving. And, you know, those are... Uh, initiatives do appear to be bearing some fruit. Uh, Mark, our company's editor, 
has covered the latest interim results. Mark, is that a fair assessment? What are your thoughts on, on Pearson as it stands? Um, I, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily use the term uh, turnaround anyway. I think this is a, an evolving uh, story with Pearson as well. Readers or, or listeners will probably remember its status at, at one point. It was a, a kind of mini conglomerate in a sense, but a a strange one at that. It's almost as if their uh, acquisitive habits uh, habits in the past are on par with uh, a monopoly board, because at one point they obviously had they they owned the IC, of course, but also Penguin at one point, The Economist had a stake in Madame Tussauds, and it was a real hodgepodge. And so, I think probably about ten years ago, um, they started stream, streamlining process itself and moved on, well, it's turned out to move on almost exclusively now to uh, uh, digital education. I guess looking at the the most recent half-year results, they can be encouraged uh, to a certain degree, but the issue is obviously clouded because the the main question, as far as I could see, is that what long-term impact the changes that were wrought by COVID-19 will will have on the business, particularly with regard to the the wider educational establishment. And we, we're not really sure on, on that yet. The results have suffered uh, over the last 18 months or so because obviously many schools have been uh, closed due to lockdown and there was an artificial boost to their digital channels as well. The question of is, of course, is you know how much is it that going to stick and how is it a point to the future of uh, education? Most of the business stands actually, with, with the, the exception of higher education, I gained momentum through the period. Probably the standout was uh, the English language unit, where um, I think sales are up by about a fifth. The company puts this down in part to increase uh, global mobility. Obviously, a lot more people out there who were interested in um, in learning English. The app's done well enough. It was, I think, it was launched. Uh, I think it was launched last year. That increased by about sixty-four percent. So they've got now. Four and a half million uh, paid subscribers and a great deal, many more that are just linked to the the app itself. Uh, results benefit through the year through a large uh, currency gain as well, but that swings and roundabouts, of course. You know, uh, Pearson has, uh, has a high degree of exposure to uh, to foreign currency, particularly the US dollar. Uh, so that may have uh, inflated the reported results too. But I think, you know, shareholders are going to be broadly pleased with the results as well, because it does seem to suggest that, at least from a, a strategic uh, point of view, there's there's more clarity now. Yeah, just to, not to uh, not to get into a, a bun fight about it, but yeah, I suppose the, the turnaround uh, terminology, what was from the point of view, you know, there are some, some green shoots there, which do seem to be finally coming through after so many years of promising this kind of, you know, shift to digital hasn't really materialised. Obviously, in some ways, the pandemic helped when everyone had to shift to digital. But there were some interesting bits in there for me as well about, you know, you talk about that kind of global mobility, that English language aspect. They also seem quite keen to uh, emphasise their uh, kind of upskilling, you know, in work, that kind of that kind of area where, you know, there's potentially some some fruitful ground in terms of, you know, companies looking to help their workers gain more qualifications or, or just do, you know, a little bit of a learning on the side, that kind of thing. So it seems like that's something they're quite keen to to push now, which might 
you know, makes sense, certainly from a marketing point of view, when there is this uncertainty over education and how people respond there post-pandemic. Yeah, I'm, I mean, they're, they're pushing this line about lifetime learning as well. And I guess that encompasses it too. I mean, there, there is a general uh, skills shortage um, through the economy. Uh, so at least theoretically, that should provide uh, support uh, as as the uh, the years roll by. Uh, it also received, uh, the company also received some port in the market due to uh, recent upgrades by uh, Deutsche and uh, Morgan Stanley, so I think that helped. Uh, that helped to uh, support the share price on results day too. But you know, as I say, I, th- I think there were positive and negative uh, impacts through COVID nineteen. We just don't really know yet in terms of uh, what's going to happen with the the virtual schools segment going forward. Whether uh, the boost it received through the pandemic, whether that much of that sticks. You know, anecdotally. I've I've heard differing opinions on uh, just how effective that is as, as a learning tool. You did you know? see, I think, a US, the US company Coursera, which was quite a pioneer in this area, did put out a bit of a warning the other week as well. But I suppose where these things come together as well, it's going to be, you know, Pearson says it's, as a lot of companies like to do at the moment, unsurprisingly say they're, you know, re- relatively recession-proof. Historically, education has been quite recession-proof because you know people go back to it when they and they lose their job in a tough market. But then, you know, if we have a recession with a strong jobs market at the moment, does that mean does that mean fewer people go back to education? Does that mean people do more business learning, the skills shortage, that kind of thing? You know, how do all these things net off against each other? It's quite interesting, and yeah, I'm not sure anyone knows the answer. Yeah, particularly as the job market, that might change appreciably over the next six mm. months. I, mm. I imagine. Yeah, that is true. I th- I, just to chip in if if i made that i mean i think it, it's it, it's certainly working itself out isn't isn't it this this global digital education kind of blue sky that they're aiming for long term but I, I i wondered particularly with the apollo approach early this year which obviously came and went though the share prices continued to to push on since they um withdrew their bid is that the the, the sort of long-term outlook for education is that that surely at some point companies and it might be Pearson it might be others are going to work out how to marry marry the two digital and education successfully and marry it with the platform global platform model with with you know excellent margins and sort of just good distribution networks that could be really that could be sort of really powerful for the yeah for the for the sort of long-term investment case and it's interesting this week in in the mag leo carradine interview with um alex savidas um johcm dynamic who i mean for him he sort of painted it as a bit of a marmite dorian i think in the piece we referenced the nick train sold his sold down his holding in pearson because he, he wasn't convinced that selling you know sort of this this digital digital education push was working but uh, alex savidas view is that you know that's really been their core focus now and it's a really smart one to go after having shed all these non non-core assets so you know i th- i think i think you know there's going to be a lot more shake out and probably more disappointments and currencies are going to swing back in the you know at some point but it's i, I think it's quite smart it's a, it's a smart place to to go go after um particularly if you think of you know how unsustainable for example the u.s higher education market is is heading and, and the opportunities for disruption may be there so um yeah my so we'll my see yeah. we'll see <laughs> i think that i think that you know it's a good summary isn't it of the the 
the short-term headwinds, clouds, uncertainty, and the longer-term, you know, opportunity. I think, as Mark says as well, you know, they are priced relatively healthily at the moment based on the some of these forecasts as well in the near term. So the the hold which it is on currently seems like a sensible sensible position. It's not. It's not, it's not crazy. It's not crazy valuation. Like fifteen times twenty twenty four earnings. I think now it's um you know for a platform business could could look cheap in a year's time. Yeah, and, and given the fact it's um, you know more a higher proportion of its income is going to come, come through subscriptions as well. Uh, that point you made as well about the US uh, educational establishment is, is valid too, because it's not just a a case of uh, the incredible costs that are involved in going to university in the United States. I think you know the average de- degree is pushing two hundred thousand pounds. Wow. Uh, but it, but it's also many of the degrees themselves aren't generally seen as being helpful in in getting candidates jobs going forward you're going to see a switch to uh, I, th- I think anyway in as in line with uh, with germany you're going to see a switch towards community colleges as they're call, called in the united states and uh, that in itself uh, presents another opportunity for uh, companies engaged in uh, digital digital education it's finally, it's finally balanced, I think we can say at the moment, uh, for Pearson. But we'll come to um, Rolls-Royce, our other result of the week, in a minute. But let's first turn to our cover story this week, which is on uh, the exciting world, or, you know, not depending, you know, if all things go well, of audit reform and accounting scandals and what can be done about them. Obviously, we've had a few high-profile collapses in the UK over the past few years, not just the UK, you know, the likes of Wirecard, obviously, as well, in Germany. Uh, and really, the piece, uh, Mike uh, is here, the, the author of the piece, is looking at both what these kind of reforms are in the UK, what, what what's actually going to change, but also, as we said at the top, you know, what investors can do themselves when they're looking at reporting accounts, you know, to see these warning signs. Because in a lot of cases, these signs were there. It's easy to say now, of course, but, you know, there are things you can look at. So let's just start, I suppose, with the... Uh, 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 the changes to the uh, you know the audit regime. There's been a lot of criticism, obviously, of the big four uh, in the way these audits are conducted. You know, whoever is charged with auditing a collapsed company obviously comes in for a lot of criticism. What are policymakers trying to do about it? So yeah, to go back a slight bit, um, these reforms have been a long time in the making. Um, there were three separate reviews of the market uh, following both. Carillion's collapse and also uh, BHS and the problems that that left, particularly for pensioners. Um, so there's one by Lord Bryden into the quality and effectiveness of audits. Uh, there's one by Lord Kingman into the FRC, the Financial Reporting Council, the Auditor's Watchdog. And there was a, a review of the market by the Competition and Markets Authority as well, um, given the dominance of the big four. Um, and the draft bill was oh, the, was a long time in the making. There were 155 different recommendations, apparently, and it, the bill was the draft bill was finally published in May, which um, when it was, there was some criticism of the scope. Um, a lot of people wanted to see recommendations of company boards to make statements on internal controls a kind of they were billing it as a Sarbanes-Oxley for the UK that was watered down the government has talked about doing it gradually and introducing a more incremental approach many of the people we spoke to the 
the accountancy bodies uh, and some of the interested parties, the auditors themselves as well, just kind of want to see some progress with this. They want to see it move on now because it's been talked about for such a long time. The main points of it, I suppose the the main principle is uh, to replace the FRC itself with a new statutory body called ARGA. The problems with the FRC are twofold, really. One is that it's funded by the industry itself. The second is that it, hon- it only really has um, powers over auditors or over accountants. It has no power over most directors. So the idea with introducing ARGA is to have a body with more teeth and a body that can look at more of what a company puts out than just the financial statements because the FRC is limited very much to the numbers, whereas ARGA will be able to pick over the entire annual report. It will have oversight over things like the nomination committee, the audit committee, and all kinds of declarations that the company makes even over things like ESG. The, uh, the proof will be in the pudding, I suppose. But of course, the the issue for a lot of investors is by the time these bodies step in, you know, the damage has been done, certainly in terms of share price a lot, on a lot of occasions. Speaking of damage to share prices, you did uh, speak to some short sellers as part of this piece to look at the kind of thing they they look at, uh, including uh, Carson Block from Muddy Walkers, I think uh, had some interesting comments, as usual, on, the, on this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean... He was he was very good fun. I was just talking to Alex about our conversation on the way down here, and there was plenty of it that was not repeatable on a podcast such as this. Alas, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he's one bit that is in the piece is he argues that really the only effective, yeah, the only effective sanction function an auditor plays is to make sure the cash balance is there. Everything else is just around interpreting the rules. Investors who think they can rely on an auditor for protection or for sniffing out fraud, his belief is that that's just mistaken and you shouldn't rely on auditors to guarantee that the numbers in a set of accounts are safe and are a true and fair reflection, which I think is, um, you know, for many private investors, that would be a concern. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a concern, but I think also that's why we, you know, focus a lot of the piece on things they can do, things they should be looking at. Uh, can we talk about some of those? Sure, yeah. Without um, going, without giving away all the uh, tricks of the trade, you have to pick yeah, up the, the mag just, for that. But, I yeah. just wanted to go back, if we can, to the reforms as well, because yep. I think um, the in, one of the interesting things around the the CMA's review and the proposals is this idea that the big four themselves are are almost like a systemic risk really one of the proposals is that public interest entities PIEs is call them basically any firm with a turnover of 750 million or more will have to have at least part of their audits conducted by a challenger firm i.e one that isn't a part of the big four the point behind that I suppose is to build resilience and to ensure that the market isn't reliant on the big four but the issue with it seems to be, um, and I spoke to uh, Dr. Roger Barker at the IOD about this, is whether or not this will have any kind of practical use at all or whether it just ends up being a replication. Does the challenger firm have any kind of meaningful input or influence or is it just going to be an additional cost for companies? 
I suppose there's an issue there as well insofar as some of these challenger firms, you know, you, there was a company recently, I can't remember who it was, but they attracted a bit of, a, you know, not even criticism, just derision for, for saying, you know, we're going to be checked by, you know, a top 15 auditor or something. You know, they don't have the credibility to begin with. And obviously the idea is over time, you know, we need more than the big four to have credibility. Well, yeah, that, that is a yeah. problem because if you look at the, some of the scandals itself, Patisserie Valerie is one that's brought up and that was one of the few large companies that uh, was audited by a non-Big Four auditor, Grant Thornton in that case. And also the FRC, although it is very keen, and Arga as its successor, was very keen to kind of build resilience in the market, it's been quite critical recently of other of the standard of audits done by the, some of the non-Big Four firms. So let, let's, um, let's get to some of these, you know, uh, accounting practices or things to look for. I mean, it's fair to say that the cash flow statement is really where one should not start, then maybe finish your analysis, but certainly look very closely at when you're trying to establish what is going on as a company. Yeah, that was, I think, is a standout from... We pointed to 10 red flags, and the, the standout, I think, is that you really have to understand the cash flow statement and to know the difference between how the cash flow statement translates against the profit statement. I mean, Carillion's a good example. It was... It had four years of uh, very good operating profits in the last four accounting periods before it declared a massive write-down and went bust. But over those four years, I think it had a cash outflow of something like £200 million. I think um, the metrics as well we discuss are important. You know, obviously there's in uh, financial analysis, there are any number of ones you could uh, pick and choose from. But but when you look at things like uh, cash conversion, for example, is, mm. is a key one, as you say, to establishing how real those profits are in some cases. Um, we also talk about things like revenue recognition, of course, and various other things, you know, when it comes to, you know, creditors, debtors, things like that, those kind of Yeah, another issue, I mean, there's a bit in there on, it's really important to understand the working capital and particularly movements in working capital and the relationship between working capital and sales and also the changes over time. Some companies, Patisserie Valerie again was one where, it was carrying really, really high levels of inventory for what it did. And, you know, the day's sales outstanding. It had really long periods where its turn on inventory was, I can't remember, something like 80 days, which is quite amazing when you consider it was a business selling cakes. <laughs> yeah. You weren't one to 80 day year old cake. Yeah. Absolutely not. No. And yet, 80 day old, rather. And yet, at the same time, I think you point out another one of the things that um, investors should always be aware of though this i think this is a really hard one to spot but in, in the case of patisserie valerie as well their margins were just yeah uh, were just, were and just that a was, lot wider than competitors and that that was that something, the red flag yeah that was something that when i was speaking to carson block and we were speaking about nmc health which he published a report in december 2020 i think uh suggesting that it had inflated its cash balances and understated its debt. The spiral there was quite amazing. Within a couple of months, the company had brought in an independent investigator and this independent investigator started digging around and found all kinds of off-balance sheet loans and other mysterious debts. And <laughs> one of Carson's lines, which isn't in the piece, is he says he's a great believer in the cockroach theory in that you never, if you find a cockroach, there's never just one. And it, with NMC, there were plenty. So it, within him 
publishing the report. Four months later, the business was in administration and its debts were something like four billion higher than was that were actually stated on its balance sheet. I think ironically in reference to that investigator, I believe, uh, well, unsurprisingly, they ended up owing that investigator a lot of money as well. That was in the administrator's report. Even yeah. though they got them in to investigate the company. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not only was it NMC as well, it also triggered a similar sort of uh, spiral down with Enabler, which was a supposedly a payments and technology company that owned Travelex, the foreign exchange company as well. And there was some cross-ownership there with NMC's founder, a guy called Dr. B.R. Shetty. The unwinding of that was, uh, again, this isn't in the piece, but um, it's quite interesting in terms of um, one red flag that companies need to look for in terms of related party transactions because he was a majority shareholder of Enabler as well and there were some share pledges that once one started unwinding affected the other. Yeah, uh, Finabler, I think, is still suspended, isn't it? Uh, NMC yep. Health has come out of administration this year, though. It's still functioning. So you do... These things, these things aren't always fatal, even if they are pretty bad for shareholders at the time. It's, well, it's another, fatal for shareholders, yeah. definitely. <laughs> NCC is a, um, another one mentioned, which obviously has had um, issues of its own, but which has actually recovered quite well and is a buy tip now. Uh, so I was going to say, there's an interesting point. There's something a really, really good bit of research out from um, Librem last year where they... they and at some point, I'm going to try and turn this into a stock screen if it's possible, to sort of like a, a red flags, almost automated approach. In their their research, they looked at something like the, the, the sector which misstated, sorry, was most overrepresented in the revenue misstatement um, sort of calamities of the last couple of decades were computer, uh, computer or tech companies. And I mean, I think it's exactly the, the reason you, you mentioned is that the, you know, the high growth industry with significant intangible investments which can sometimes backfire or be uh, incur large write downs because they're quite over time you know you have to adjust the amount that the capitalized in um capitalized spending is going to generate in cash in, in the you know in the coming years particularly in really competitive areas so it's kind of that's both a, a i suppose an understandable corporate misstep situation but also with the capacity for sort of balance sheet padding essentially um, that that's that's one industry that investors have to pay real attention to. Not to not to mention the way they charge, you know, they structure some of their services as well and accrue in advance of selling some goods as well. Yeah, and every other red flags that we mentioned as well is um, M and A again, not just NMC, but we talked about Wirecard as well. And one of the things that was found in the in the fallout from Wirecard is that it bought three companies in India, which. It supposedly paid about 300 million euros for, and it's actually only paid 30 million. And Carson Block was saying that doing deals with friendlies, as he called them, is if you're generating fake profits, then you have this problem of fake cash, and somehow you have to get rid of that cash. And M&A is often, an overstating the price that you pay for something, is often one way in frauds in which that has, in which they've been able to kind of burn off that fake cash. We've covered a lot of ground here, and there is a lot to cover on this this topic. But uh, uh, I think it's one of those where it is it is uh, good to have it set out in front of you, which is why I would encourage you all to uh, go and check out the uh, the feature itself. Okay, let's go back to results for our final segment. If Pearson can't really be described as a turnaround, then uh, this company certainly can't at the moment. Rolls Royce had its interims out today, and 
it's another case of jam tomorrow, really. Yeah, it is. Um, I started at the IC about a year ago, and Rolls-Royce was um, my first ever idea, a buy idea in it. And, I, yeah, I feel like I'm quoting... Uh, <laughs> Quoting uh, Dr. Berry from The Big Short by saying, I may have been early, but I'm not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, as the result was in that film, it's the same thing. Rolls Royce shares are down a third this year. The recovery in aerospace is really the thing that has um, weighed against it. It's had jets caught up in Russia that were parked for a while and weren't doing anything. You've got the whole long-haul travel and long-haul is where most of its large engines fly and it makes money from the amount of time they spend in the air in long-haul you still got a big problem in east asia as well in china and the recovery of long-haul in asia is still really really weak so that has been really the thing that has slowed its uh, comeback or its turnaround yeah Yeah. obviously there is a new ceo coming to rolls royce soon i think starts from next year is it too soon for there to be an element of kitchen sinking? You could probably describe each of Rolls's last few results as a kitchen sinker. Yeah, and I do think, <laughs> I'm bound to say this given that I put them on a buy, and I still think in the long as a long-term idea, they've got a lot of potential. But I do think there's been progress made. I mean, yes, it's made another loss, but and it's still burning cash, but at nowhere near the rate it was. We're talking uh, in the first half, the cash outflow was 68 million, uh, but that's down from 1.2 billion in the same period last year and 2.9 billion in the first six months of the year before that. So there's been a swing of about 1.1 billion of cash flow improvement. And that's mainly because although the aerospace division, as we've just said, isn't recovering as quickly, any kind of recovery there means, yeah, it's... It's, it just kind of feeds straight through to the bottom line, really. Mm. It's done quite a big job in the past couple of years in terms of rationalising and cutting costs and shedding thousands of jobs. So it's a much fitter business now. It just needs that top-line pickup. And it's not all bad either. I'll, the defence business also still lost money during the first half, but it's certainly showing signs of improvement and they were saying that this is a real long cycle business in defense you can't although the the picture for defense companies in the last six months looks a lot brighter for unfortunate reasons it's not something that's going to feed straight through to rolls royce's results in the interim yeah and and power systems were uh you know a bright spot as well Uh, i think they were talking about you know a lot of backup supply and people concerned about the winter uh, which you know, has actually translated relatively well for them at this at this uh, this stage. Um, yeah, operating profit in that division trebled to 190 million, uh, much higher margins. Although that did have um, a kind of more of a build-up of inventory, which is sort of obvious, really, if you're doing so much more business. I think again, they're trying to get ahead of what they see as semi more semiconductor shortages coming. But Indeed, from the yeah. results call, they seem to be quite optimistic that 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 inventory should be enough to see them see them through but yeah and i think the other main reason for optimism with this is the the nuclear arm it's still at the minute it's kind of pre-revenue as is the hydrogen business that they just did a deal with easyjet on at farnborough 
but um, there's been quite a lot of progress with the small modular reactor consortium. Within the last year, they have got a big piece of funding from government. They've agreed a bunch of private sector funding. They've got money from uh, the Qatar Investment Authority. They have set up physical presence for the HQ in Manchester. They signed a big deal recently to set up the first of the factories. So there's a lot of progress there. And yes, that could be something the design process for that is going to take an awfully long time for because of the nature of what it is. You know, these are nuclear reactors, a type of nuclear reactor that has never been built. When you're talking about 15 of these in the UK and that then maybe being a footprint that could be exported all over the world, uh, especially in times like this where energy security is such a big issue, then I do think there's still some potential here. It's uh, just a finish this segment let's go back to the uh aerospace you know the wide bodies is an interesting point you say about you know the way that cash drops through very quickly yeah. i think long haul they or they their business they're at about 60 percent pre-pandemic they've yeah. said i think in the past they've said 80 percent would be you know about 800 million of cash flow so they're not too far away there is that question of china i suppose you know what happens if you know because that is a, a segment of the long-haul business you know with what happens to travel there but um, that's the but, key segment really i yeah. mean when you look at um everywhere else in the world doing long haul the middle east is booming again it's kind of back up above pre-pandemic levels and the the appetite for transatlantic travel has been really really healthy as well so it's really just the um it's just really the china traffic that's the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle yeah and if that improves, and it is an if at the moment, then I think you could see a real quick drop through again on that operational leverage. I wonder how high it could get without China though as well. I think they said they're getting, they're seeing some sort of 65% post reporting period. You know, you do long haul, a lot of it is just internal US flights, isn't it? Yeah. As, um, so, you know, maybe some potential even without China. But Yeah, so they've guided for 60 to 70% this year. They are quite positive that they will achieve that and they're still the target they had set for recovery to pre-pandemic levels was 2024 and they are sticking to that so and then yeah. the the new question i suppose for for everyone next year is the new ceo there was quite a positive profile of him in the uh in the uh ft the other day from his time at bp so you know hope springs eternal uh, i think uh you know compared with the uh the in incumbent i think well, the only way is up i suppose if you've been a long-term uh, holder of Rolls Royce, you may be uh, rolling your eyes at this because hope has sprung eternal with them for quite a long time and uh, hasn't been delivered. He went into the pandemic in quite an awful state, really, and was already carrying a lot of debt, and then has had to deal with a couple of years of no flying or really, really reduced flying. So its balance sheet is still in quite an awful state. But they have just the Spanish government have just agreed or just sanctioned the sale of their itp aero business and that uh, is expected to conclude fairly soon and that'll bring in another 1.3 billion so again hopefully its debt position should look a little better by the end of the year as well 
Actually, there's an interesting uh, comparison as well, because you we were talking uh, previously about uh, auditing standards and how they can differ. I mean, part of Rolls-Royce's problems for a long while was uh, was uh, its account, accounting treatment, uh, particularly in, in relation to revenue recognition, uh, because of after sales is such an important part of the business. And I think I think it must have been going back to two. 2020 when when they altered the basis of uh, accounts there so i mean i think in the past that was hiding a, a multitude of sins um but then by the same token we shouldn't forget you know the problems that they they had um sort of prolonged problems with the uh, with the trent engines cracking uh, uh and metal fatigue over a while uh, or composite to fatigue over a, a certain length of time but they did receive kudos in the industrial industry as well because they were very uh, straightforward with the market on those problems and they addressed it uh, relatively quickly given the technological challenges there. So, uh, I mean, we shouldn't be um, uh, too hard on, on Warren East there. Uh, and and Michael, I, kn I know this has weighed on you heavily, uh, the, the, the Rolls-Royce uh, idea, but I, I, I tend to agree with you as well. I, I think... Uh, the, the the strength of the company are, are still there. It's a it's it's one of the few large scale UK industrial uh, companies that that's at the forefront of the technology too, and um, I think the government now is taking very seriously the uh, small uh, modular reactor uh, as a as a way of uh, uh, mitigating our uh, energy energy shortfall. So I'm with you all the way, Mike. <laughs> it's good to know that the Rolls Royce has got at least two believers then. Yeah, need a, a few more, but hopefully they will uh, uh, start emerging before too long. On that note, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. We have run out of time, but thank you to Mark and to Mike and to Alex and to John. And thank you to you, as ever, for listening. We will be back with you next week with another Companies and Market Show.